Welcome to Daniel class. Uh, there's, I see new faces, uh, some new faith students, I'm assuming. And so, good for you. You chose the right college. And uh, if you don't know me, my name is Charlie, so you guys should know me. I'll see you in freshman orientation class tomorrow. What time is that? 820. 820. You know why I'm asking? Because I had no idea, but I just knew that I'm supposed to be there tomorrow. Uh, so yeah, hi, my name's Charlie, and uh, we're in Daniel chapter 4 tonight. If you haven't been with us yet, we've been uh, starting our way through Daniel 4, or Daniel, and we're in Daniel 4. I'm a little sleep deprived today, guys, so uh, you're going to have to bear with me. Um, so before we get to Daniel 4, I didn't ask Logan. Logan, should we start with prayer, or should we start with the Bible study? Okay, Logan said Bible study. So we're going to start with Bible study tonight. So you can put your carrying post uh, behind the... There, there were half sheets out in the foyer if you didn't get those. Um, and uh, if you need one, uh, maybe Terry will bring in a whole pile of them. And uh, yeah, so uh, Daniel chapter 4, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And... Uh, Whenever I have a deadline with a, with a student or someone at the school, I need to be done at a certain time, I set an alarm on my phone so I know that you need to be done at this time, and it plays um, the circle of life from Lion King when it goes off, uh, and it usually scares me because I'm like not aware that it's about to happen. I don't know if I should do that tonight. Um, I should? Okay. Let me, uh, let me do that. How much time do we, so we want to pray for probably 20 or 25 minutes. We're supposed to be done around 8, 10, 8, 15. So that puts us around 50. So math is hard. So I will go 45 minutes. Is that, am I mathing correctly? Okay. It's not going to be exactly 45 minutes because I don't want you to know exactly when it's going to go off, but it will go off and it will play Lion King when it does. So be aware. We'll put it over here. It'll, I'll jump. I, it, yeah, anyway. Um, okay, so we're starting with our Bible study. Daniel chapter 4. So if you have your copy, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 4. And we will uh, kind of do what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. Where if I could get a volunteer to read verses 1 through 3. These are the five main sections that we're going to work through our passage with tonight. Someone want to read Daniel 4? Mark's going to, but before he does that, I'm just going to pray really quickly before we start our study, okay? So let's pray really quick, and then Mark will read the first three verses for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this night. Thank you so much for allowing us to come together and study your word. And God, thank you that when we look into your word, your spirit does help us to understand the truth that is there for us, And God, that you use the word and uh, the spirit uses the word to transform us. And God, I pray that that would be accomplished as we look into your word tonight, especially with the applications that we will focus on. I I pray that you would help us to clearly see uh, what your word presents for us. And so God, with that in mind, bless uh, this next hour or so. And we pray this in your son, Jesus name. Amen. Chapter four, one through three. All right, so as you can see here, verses 1 through 3 
is an introduction, and it's by Nebuchadnezzar, which is really unique. The last couple of chapters have not been a first-person account from Nebuchadnezzar, and that is what we have here in this chapter. You can really see it beginning of verse 2, verse 4, which we haven't gotten to, verse 5, verse 6. It's I, I, I. It is written as an account, first-hand personal account from Nebuchadnezzar, uh, which is really fun. Uh, so what is on your sheet, what's on the screen uh, an interesting point that you can't see in the English translations is that they actually put verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. So in all of our Bibles, chapter 4, 1 through 3, is actually tacked on to the end of chapter 3. I think I said that correctly. Our verses, chapter 4, 1 through 3, is the end of chapter 3. So they add a 31, 32, 33 at the end of chapter 3, if you pulled open a Hebrew text, which is not actually Hebrew, it's Aramaic, the language, but a Hebrew Bible, that's what you would see, is that the chapters there and the versification in a Hebrew Bible, they actually tack that little part there at the end of chapter 3. I'm not sure if there's a huge significance to that, because it's pretty clearly that Nebuchadnezzar is, we have a transition in this first-person account, but as good students of the Bible, I just want you to be aware that that's happening, uh, that English translations have shuffled that for you to make it flow a little clearer. But if you pulled open a Hebrew script, that's what you would see. You'd see verses 31, 32, and 33, and that's what Mark just read. So just as good students of the Bible, now you know that that's there. Not sure there's a lot of significance to it. Um, so the, if you didn't catch the question, he asked, in the Hebrew Bible, do they have numbers like ours do? So numbers in the sense of chapters and verses? Uh, no, not necessarily. Uh, they used certain symbols to indicate breaks in the text, which is also why I don't think this is of that much significance. So even though verse 3 of our chapter 4 would be verse 33 in the Hebrew Bible, they put a, it's called a samech, which would be a symbol to indicate a break, after uh, verse 30. So they indicate in the Hebrew text a break there, and that is probably a big reason why our English translations have moved it to chapter 4. But that's way too technical for a Wednesday night where we're sleep-deprived. But we're, we aren't sleep-deprived. I'm sleep-deprived. Um, so, but that's a great question. So uh, all of the chapter divisions and verses in our English Bibles are not original, just so you know that. Both Testaments, they're, they're not original. Those were added much, much later. Uh, and I think that some of them are well-informed, but many of them, you know, it's, it, they're not all specifically accurate to every text. So just, again, as good students of the Bible, it's good to know that, that chapters and verses were not original uh, with, with the writings. So uh, let's keep going here. So letter B, uh, so... If you're new to our class, what we're noting in Hebrew narrative is when there are repetitions of ideas. And so what we see here, letter B and letter C there, are a couple of repetitions that we've picked up from previous chapters, but they come up as themes beginning at the, uh, these first three verses in chapter 4. And they're great and mighty. And then the idea of kingdom, letter C. And you can see that in verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty, it's kind of communicating power, and what's the theme so far that we've developed of this whole book? 
who's really in control, who's really powerful. Verse 2 refers to God as the Most High God. And that would be fairly significant for Nebuchadnezzar to call him that. So we've seen in chapter 3 and chapter 2 and 1, Nebuchadnezzar has a really high view of himself, right? And for him to actually use these terms to refer to one God, the God of the Israelites, would be pretty significant. And uh, again, this is kind of setting up what's going to happen in this particular story. Nebuchadnezzar personally learns that he's not that high and that God, Jehovah, is. So those ideas coming up in the first three verses are going to create some repetition for us. And that idea of kingdom and uh, at the end of verse 3, dominion, is going to be a very big theme as we transition into the second half of Daniel. As we start talking about eschatology, so all of these predictions of what's going to happen in the future of the end times, we're talking about how God will eventually fulfill his promises to his promised people Israel. And those promises are summed up in land and a king. Like Israel will have this particular land of Palestine and they will have an earthly king. And they currently don't have that. They certainly didn't have that in Daniel 4 because Nebuchadnezzar had conquered them and taken them exile in Babylon. And so to recognize God's kingdom, that is a a very loaded theological idea. And this is not the the last time that God's kingdom is going to come up in this text. And so uh, both in... We're going to see a lot of it in this chapter, but then as we get really beyond Daniel 6, so 7 through 12, looking at end times, prophecies of kingdoms, that's going to be a very significant theme in the book. So we want to note that now. All right, we got to keep, I have, uh, this is good that we're going to pray at the end. It's going to keep me moving because I know that thing's going to start playing at some point. And so we just got to, we just got to keep moving here. So. Does someone want to read this passage for us? And if we're keeping score, I guess we'll go with far right column, middle column, left column. Middle column has one point, so they're winning. So if you guys want to keep up, we need some volunteers to read 4 through 10. Amy volunteers. They're taking a commanding lead, guys. You can't let this happen. Okay, you have the next one. Amy, you get this one. And you can, you can read, I know it says 10a, you can go ahead and read all of verse 10. So, All right. Thank you, Amy. And uh, so, uh, what do we see here? Letter A, some previous themes are coming back up again. This scene is very similar to a previous scene where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he's troubled by it and he's trying to figure out what the dream means, right? If you remember this from chapter 2 and... She remembers chapter two. Great job. Um, Always, you know, a particularly fun challenge for preaching and teaching is when young children like to make noise. I love it. Just tells me they're following along right with me. So, uh, but for adults, that's not acceptable. So, um, so we see this repetition from coming back from chapter two of dreams, wise men, interpretations, and then Daniel being the one who's going to eventually give us this interpretation. 
And we've already run through this before. And so you kind of know, uh, if you want to go back and review the chapter two study, uh, we have that, that posted on our website. You can get the notes again. But a lot of those ideas are coming up here. And again, we can note that Nebuchadnezzar has made a progression. Um, he's not commanding that people be killed at this point, which that was his uh, consequence in chapter two. If you can't tell me, I'm going to kill all of you. So a little personal growth there for him. Uh, that's, that's good. And we know right away that Daniel's the solution. And Nebuchadnezzar states this. So just look again at verse 9, and that's what um, letter B is going to focus on as well. Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know, and just pause there, if you remember back in chapter 2, one of those key words was, I want to know, I want to know, I want to know. What does he know? I know that the spirit of the holy God or gods is in you, and no secret troubles you. That word for secret or riddle was a heavily repeated word in previous chapters. No secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I've seen and its interpretation. And again, a little bit difference of this story is he doesn't feel the need for someone to figure out the dream on their own. He's going to tell Daniel the dream, and then he's just looking for Daniel to interpret. Verse 9 is interesting we don't have a lot of mention in the Old Testament about the activity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the church van uh, last Sunday, we had quite a robust discussion on the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as we rode home. And this is, it's an interesting theological discussion. What is the Holy Spirit doing in the Old Testament? We don't have time to go into that. But it is interesting that he brings this up here. What is Nebuchadnezzar's reflection of Daniel, it's not that Daniel is particularly smart or intelligent. He's going to Daniel because he knows the spirit of God is, and the preposition is somewhat, can be somewhat important, in or among or resides with um, Daniel. And none of those are specific words that are used here, but just prepositions that we would commonly use of the Holy Spirit's in us or among us. Um, but he recognizes the presence of God's Spirit with Daniel. And that is what is going to help him understand this revelation of this dream. And I think it's interesting to point that out because we, especially when we start talking about dreams and revelation and this, like a vision, uh, which would be common entities in the Old Testament and in the New Testament beginnings, uh, but we don't necessarily expect those types of revelation today. Um, and again, we don't have time to really get into all of that. But what's interesting is we actually have the same means for understanding the revelation that we have in Scripture that Daniel had. It's not some m mystical experience. It's, it's the Spirit of God in Daniel that's giving him and helping him to interpret and we talked about this on Sunday, didn't we? Where we have the Holy Spirit in us, and that is the way that we understand truth. It's the indwelling of God's Spirit. And again, we don't have time to get into specific theology on that. We would say there are some differences between Old Testament and New Testament with the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting that what is being attributed here as a main reason 
for Daniel's ability to interpret the dream is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it should be encouraging to, to us that we have that same thing. In fact, I, w- I would say we have more of it, uh, and we can't get into specifics of it. If you want to know more, if we want to talk more about that, you can you know, talk to me after. But, so uh, that idea of the Spirit of God is going to come up again in the next section. So the reason why there's a break on your notes at 10A, and then the next one is going to be 10B, your translation probably offsets them in some way. Like if you look down at verse 10, do you have a break in the middle of that as he starts to talk about his dream? And again, this would be something where we kind of see it visually in our text. You would really see it in a Hebrew Bible, the way it's organized. This is actually not organized as the same genre as the rest of the chapter. This section here is offset because it's a poem. It's, it's arranged poetically. Um, or it has more poetic features to it, which we've talked a lot about Hebrew narrative as we've begun this class. Another genre of the Old Testament would be poetry. And all of the Psalms are Hebrew poetry. And there are slightly different ideas or interpretive rules that we would use as we look at poetry, um, most of them are self-evident, self-evident, so we're not going to talk about them. But it's interesting to know like that, that's what's going on. Like They're offsetting it for a reason. That section is, is a more poetic section, which is interesting as you think through Nebuchadnezzar trying to communicate what happened to him, that he chose a poem to do it. And you know, we, we do this still. Humans like to use expressive language to communicate the way they think and feel. And poetry is still a main vacuum. Vacuum. That's not the word I'm looking for. Anyway, it's a main way that people still do this today. They use forms of literature to express themselves. And I just think it's kind of fascinating that Nebuchadnezzar does this too. That's why those verses, uh, starting in verse 10, going down really to 18, um, and depending on your translation, it might continue some formatting, Uh, but really it's verse 18 where that is uh, properly done. So, uh, can someone read for us 10b, or all of 10, through verse 18? And middle section, this is your opportunity to take a commanding lead. Awesome, here we go. Oh, wait, I already, I'm sorry. You can have the next one? Okay, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, 10 through 18. Thank you. And so, uh, continuing down uh, our outline, there was, uh, this is a logistical error as I copy and pasted outlines from last week to this week. Letter B, that is a remnant of chapter 3, so you can disregard that on your handout. Um, So, you know, I'm honestly kind of shocked that four weeks in, that's the first time that that's really happened. Um, But anyway, so, uh, again, let's note some repetition of ideas. And uh, actually, before we do that, uh, note why maybe Nebuchadnezzar has depicted his dream in a more poetic form. It's very visual. And as you listen to verses 11 and 12, there's this big tree, and there's birds, and then these 
watchers come down, and you're like, well, what's the watcher, you know? And, and then they're going to cut the tree down, but leave the stump. Your mind is filled with images, right? And uh, that is actually one of the greatest benefits of poetry, and it's why a lot of Old Testament writing is poems. It's meant to stimulate your imagination, And again, we don't have time to get into this, but it's a really interesting discussion how your imagination, your mind, and how it imagines things is directly tied to your affections. And where this comes like full circle is just think of your favorite Disney movie. And you have images and songs and how it stimulates you creatively and imaginatively And how that also then stirs the way you feel. And how those images and those sounds, the songs, are intimately connected to that. Now here you have someone imagining a picture. And a poem has meter and rhyme to it. So there's sounds associated with poetry. And as you learn them, and as you, even with the Psalms, you might memorize them. Like, imagine being a Hebrew memorizing the song that is Psalm 1. Interestingly enough, also about a tree. And as you memorize that and you sing it, how it stirs your affection for truth. And, and poetry does that really well. And I think there's a lot of poetry in the Bible because God is deeply concerned with your affections. We don't have time to get into that. There's a, there's a lot of those tonight where we can't really talk about that. But if you want to talk more about your imagination and the cultivation of affections, talk to me later. Um, but anyway, so that's what's going on. You have this poem that is intentionally trying to get you to imagine the scene. He wants you to see what he saw and to think about what he is thinking about. Uh, now we get to these repetitions in the midst of the dream, and there's, there's a lot of interesting things going on here. Just point out that in verse 14, the one talking is someone that's come down from heaven. We're most likely referring to an angel here as the watcher, the holy one. And verses 14 through 17 are what the watcher is saying in the dream. So... Imagine having this dream and hearing this and waking up in the middle of the night and thinking, what in the world was that? So what is the watcher saying? This great tree, verse 14, is going to be chopped down and we're going to leave the stump, verse 15, in the ground. And uh, then verse 16 is where it kind of gets really interesting. Let his heart be changed. Well, trees don't, like, have a heart or a soul that needs to be changed, right? Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast. And let seven times pass over him. Now we, you know, if you're intuitive enough, you know, you'd think Nebuchadnezzar might be able to piece this together on his own, that we're, we're talking about him. He doesn't get it yet. Verse 17 is where we get a lot of repetition of previous ideas. And it, verse 17 is going to be repeated again in this passage. So, verse 17, this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know, huge theme from a previous chapter, that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, huge themes that are being repeated, 
that the Most High rules and gives. Do you remember that from chapter 1? That the Lord gives. He gave the kingdom over to Nebuchadnezzar. He gives kingdom to whomever he wills and sets over it the lowest of men. And so, uh, if you want to just asterisk something there, that lowest is going to come up. But in your notes, the idea of knowing, the idea of ruling and kingdom and giving is, uh, is very simple repetition of ideas. So we're focusing on the rule of God, the reign of God, just making the point that we already know very well at this point. God's in control, and he gives it to whomever he wants. Uh, verse 18, as Nebuchadnezzar closes the section, he turns from the quote of his dream to speaking to Daniel or Belteshazzar. And it's interesting that he repeats the idea of the Spirit of God. So now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom, again, wise is a huge theme being uh, repeated, kingdom uh, repeated, and then uh, if you didn't catch it, are not able... If you remember from, I can't remember if it was chapter 3 or chapter 2, but who was who able to deliver? It was chapter 3 from last week. God is not able, there is not a God who is able to deliver you from my hand. Here's that coming up again. All the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me, but you are able. Why? Because the spirit of the holy God is in you. So, This chapter, if you're not catching it, there's just a huge clash of all of these themes that we've seen again. Chapter 1, God's giving, God's giving, God's giving. Nebuchadnezzar wants to know, he wants to know, he wants to know. And Daniel's the one that gives the knowledge. All of that's coming up again here. What's unique about chapter 4 is it's coming from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing I want to know. My wise men cannot tell me. They're not able. But Daniel, you are able because the Spirit of God is with you. That's a, that's a big, big theme that's coming up. So let's keep moving here. And we already have a reader for this one. 19 through 27. Let's go ahead and read that. You got a large chunk. Sorry, sorry about that. Awesome. Thank you. So it's one to three to zero. So, and this is not golf, by the way. So, you know, you got, yeah, sorry, Debbie. <laughs> uh, okay, so what's going on here? This is Daniel interpreting the dream, and it's pretty straightforward. So make sure you caught it. The big tree in the dream is Nebuchadnezzar. His tree is huge. It's his kingdom. Babylon was, a, was the dominant power in the world. And what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar and his big tree, his kingdom? It's going to be cut down. Um, and so, what, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself because it's going to happen. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a, a change in situation of life where he who is great and high and mighty, something's going to happen to him. And it's described as, in verse 25, you're going to be driven from men. Um, And we find out that this is a literal idea. 
where Nebuchadnezzar himself is going to be removed from authority in Babylon, and he's going to be literally living like a beast. He's going to, and this is you know, not the beginning of that other Disney movie. Um, but so let's talk about this historically for a moment. And I don't have any of this on the PowerPoint because I don't think it's that important. You can Google all of this information. Just keep in mind when you Google theological or semi-theological things that there's a lot of wrong answers out there. Um, but you can get historical information and think this through. So if you're tracking in the book of Daniel, um, so how old is Daniel in chapter 1? He's pretty young. And we noted that he's probably like a, a young teenager. Yeah. And then when you get to Daniel 3, how much have they grown? And we haven't made any comments about this, but we are progressing chronologically. Most people think that Daniel 3, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were probably young teenagers when they first got there, Daniel 1, it's probably been a handful of years, maybe three to five, give or take. We don't know really for sure. There are some people that attempt to build calendars and make it all work. Uh, The problem is there's usually one or two things that are always off on those, and you just have to pick one. Uh, which when we get to Daniel 9 and you want to start talking about calendars, we're going to have so much fun, let me tell you. But there's always, when we try to figure out like a Hebrew calendar with our modern calendar and you know a solar or lunar calendar and try to fit it into like a historical dates calendar, there are a lot of problems that come up. And so all that to say, it's probably three to five years, give or take, from chapter 1 to chapter 3 at least the ages of those young guys. We've now moved in Daniel 4 much later, probably at least into like the 30 to 35 year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So at least into the 20 year category and maybe longer, maybe around 30 years later. So Daniel at this point is not a teenager. He's not, he's, he's, he's at least, he's probably about my age, like maybe 31, the perfect age. Um, and so, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are probably in their 30s or late 20s. Nebuchadnezzar is significantly older. And uh, why that's important is we try to figure out where this could have happened, um, where he receives this dream about his rule being taken from him, and what we will read at the end of the story where it actually happens we do look historically for this to be corroborated. Like, is there any record of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, which nobody denies the existence of Nebuchadnezzar or the kingdom of Babylon. Every Western Civ textbook or history textbook is going to have these names in it. So can we find historical data to corroborate this? And I'm just going to simply say, there isn't. But that actually is the data. There is, in the later parts of this time frame, there is a silence of years about things concerning Nebuchadnezzar. We don't have any strict historical documents that say, yeah, we kicked Nebuchadnezzar out on Monday and he came back seven years later. We don't, we don't have anything like that. But there is what would fit in the latter parts of his reign, a silence of years where we don't really have anything and nothing's being said about him or from him. So... There is an acceptable window of time where this certainly could have happened. 
And that might actually be what you would expect. You know, if we were, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to draw a common political comparison. But if we were to kick a president out of our country, we wouldn't expect much documentation about them beyond that point until maybe they came back. And so uh, I know Donald Trump is probably a huge exception to that because of social media, but you get the idea. It's like once you kick them out, you're not expecting to hear from them. And that does somewhat happen with the timeline of Nebuchadnezzar. There is a, a segment of silent years that fits into this timeline. If you want to research that more, I will help you find some good resources to do that. It's not, uh, we, we have a, a, an alarm clock set, so we've got to keep moving. So uh, what I do think is interesting is the repetition in verse 25. And uh, very clearly, they shall drive you from men, and they, speaking of the people, this is Daniel interpreting, they're going to drive you, Nebuchadnezzar, from your dwelling, and you will be with beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, and likely referring to seven years, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses." And just to point out, there's a very clear purpose to why this is happening to Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to be forced into the wilderness for a time until he learns something. There's a very specific thing he needs to learn. What is it? The most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Once you learn that, you're back. (laughs) So... um, What's interesting then, after he repeats that purpose of the, uh, his being kicked out, being removed, is then what Daniel prescribes in verse 27. So look at that again. Therefore, O king, in light of what is prophetically revealed to happen to you through this dream, what should you do? Let my advice be acceptable to you. He makes it very clear this is not in the dream. This is Daniel's counsel as a result of the dream. Because you will be forced into exile to learn about God's rule, you should break off, or a very literal translation would be to tear away your sins through being righteous or by being righteous, and to tear off, kind of implies the verb a second time, your iniquities through showing mercy to the poor. So what does Daniel prescribe? You should humble yourself, Nebuchadnezzar, and you should turn away from your sin. And maybe, perhaps, there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. And uh, this is going to come up on the other side of your sheet, but uh, Daniel teaches Nebuchadnezzar, and it's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar is writing this, Daniel gives him counsel as a result of the dream. And he says, you should repent because God will relent if you repent. We have abundant, abundant examples in Scripture that if you've done something wrong, which deserves consequences, but if you repent, you turn away from that sin and you cry out and ask for forgiveness, that this God 
forgives. And Daniel says, yeah, you should do that because perhaps there'll be a lengthening of your prosperity. This might not happen to you if you repent. And what we know is going to happen is that he's going to repent eventually. But there's a great what if here. If he would have done it right there, I think God would have changed his mind. Daniel saying, hey, you can, you can humble yourself right now. You can turn. This is an awesome, awesome message. We can't elaborate. That alarm's going to go off really quick. Okay, so uh, last section. Someone want to read 28 through 37? Uh, final score, middle column wins. Anyway, uh, so we have to just stick to the script. So verse 30, there's a repetition going on here. Um, that we caught all the way back. I think it says chapter 3. It's supposed to say, oh, no, that is chapter 3. Yeah. Where the statue which Nebuchadnezzar had built up, if you remember that repetition, over and over. Who built the statue? Nebuchadnezzar set it up. Nebuchadnezzar built it. And he then speaks that. (laughs) Isn't this the great Babylon that I've built? And it's the same idea from chapter 3. And, of course, at this point in Daniel, we know... That's not true. You didn't build this. It was given to you. And the moment he says that, uh, which is a pretty easy remark of pride, so we know he didn't humble himself, he didn't repent, uh, he progressed in his error, and then, boom, here's the dream's going to come to come true. And tree's going to get chopped down and now go out to the fields. He's, he's like an animal. And that, that happens. And again, just to say that there is a time frame that we know exists in the time of Nebuchadnezzar where we have a sufficient amount of silence about him that this certainly could have happened. We don't have a lot of direct evidence, but obviously we think that the Bible is good evidence too, and so this literally happens. What's really interesting, well, before we do that, verse 32, uh, a repetition again. Why is he being driven out into the wilderness? Until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. I think that's the third time that that is repeated in the chapter. It's a very key theme of why God is doing what he's doing to Nebuchadnezzar, that he would know something. And it's until he learns it, he's going to be exiled. He's going to be in the wilderness which you should hold on to that until we get to the other side of the paper. Verse 34 and 37, we get back to this grand theme of chapter 3. Chapter 3, when you hear the music, fall down and worship me, worship my statue. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you. Well, verses 34 and 37, that whole section, what do we have here? We have the king down on all fours. He's fallen down. There's posture communicated. He's like an animal. And he looks up to heaven. Verse 34. And now what is he doing? He's learning. I lifted my eyes and my understanding returned and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. Jumping down to 37. I praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth 
his ways, justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Um, we don't have time to sit on this. And you just meditate on this. This is such a unique testimony. He learned what he was supposed to learn. It took Nebuchadnezzar seven years to learn. God is the king. And we saw, we've seen a progression throughout the first four chapters where he starts to get things. He's a little bit more theologically informed. I don't know how you look at 34 through 37 and you could deny that Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven. I think he fully gets it. Uh, 37, three words for worship. I, personal, I worship him. Why? Because he was able to humble me. An unrepentant sinner doesn't say something like that. And I know that anecdotally, when I am resisting the Spirit of God, I don't say things like that. I struggle to worship. And it's actually when I realize my own sin and I repent that I say things like that. Man, God is good. Look at what he does in my heart when I turn to him. How he cleanses me of sin and he restores me. He brings joy back to my soul. That's 37. Nebuchadnezzar, he's got it. It's so beautiful. Um, so with that in mind, you know, flip over your sheet. We start thinking about application. And uh, man, we just have too much to cover today. I'll just summarize it in this way. And when the alarm goes off, we'll be done. And get to prayer. We are sometimes very critical of Nebuchadnezzar as a character. Like, wow, you know, he had to be driven out in the wilderness for seven years. I don't know if it would take me that long. And this is a pagan king, seven years. Let's think about the history of Israel for a moment. First generation of Israel comes up out of Egypt. And that whole first generation died in the wilderness. Because they wouldn't obey the Lord when he, when he told them to go and take the land. They were afraid of the people in the land, and they wouldn't do it. And then God said, you're going to go into the wilderness and die. And they said, oh, no, we'll do it now. We'll do it now. And he says, don't do it, because if you go, you're going to die. You can read about it in the opening chapters of Deuteronomy. Moses rehearses it. All of the first generation of Israel died. And then the second generation wandered for 40 years. You know, if you're comparing them one to one, Nebuchadnezzar did a lot better than the second generation of Israel. And then we know what happened later on in the life of Israel, where uh, they. Imagine you're in my office and you hear that. It's like, it's time to be done. Okay. Um, so the point being, God has done this in the life of Israel, and they haven't necessarily responded the right way either. And uh, we'll just, we're just going to leave it where we are. But I want you to focus on letter B and then number two. Um, I think there's a great recognition we can have here that the same way God worked in Nebuchadnezzar's life was the same way he was working in Israel's life. And he does the same things to us today. He allows difficulty in the form of people and difficult circumstances. 
He allows us to be tempted by sin. We have trials. And if you want some cross-references, James 1, James 4, 1 Peter talks about trials all over the place. If you want an Old Testament reference for Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 8, God allows the pressure to reveal what's at work in your heart so that you'll humble yourself. And the great promise of God is that when you humble yourself and ask for forgiveness of sins, through the blood of Christ, he will forgive you all of the time. Even as someone who's saved, if you are struggling with sin and God is putting pressure in your life to reveal that sin, you can have the same prescription. You know what you should do? You should turn from your sin. And it's not perhaps God will lengthen your days. If you turn, 1 John 1, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And that is not specifically speaking of salvation. That cleansing is necessary for the ongoing life of the believer daily. This, man, we don't have time to get into it. The alarm went off. I'm breaking my rule. Uh, You know, God's sovereign reign actually has a profound impact on your sanctification. And it was true for Nebuchadnezzar. It was true for Daniel and his friends. It was true for the nation of Israel. And God is doing the exact same thing in your life. Uh, We'll just read the big point. Uh, God's sovereign reign extends to his control and work within, meaning within the heart and soul, within every human being, regardless of their religion, social status, etc. And we see that perfectly displayed by Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony of salvation and humbling at the hand of the true king. That's absolutely beautiful. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll, maybe we'll just pause. We have an extra week in our study. Maybe we'll come back next week and we'll just talk about the application from this one because I think it's very profound. But that's Daniel chapter 4.